0: In each episode, we discuss the process of decision-making on a different topic from the business owner's or executive's perspective. We aren't necessarily telling you what to do, but we can put you in a position to make an informed decision on your own and understand when you might need help along the way. My name is Mike Blake, and I'm your host for today's program. I'm a director at Bradyware & Company, a full-service accounting firm based in Dayton, Ohio, with offices in Dayton, Columbus, Ohio, Richmond, Indiana, and Alpharetta, Georgia. Brady, are sponsoring this podcast, which is being recorded in Atlanta for social distancing protocols. If you'd like to engage with me on social media with my chart of the day and other content, I'm on LinkedIn as myself and at Unblakable on Facebook, Twitter, Clubhouse, and Instagram. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcast aggregator and please consider leaving a review of the podcast as well. So today's topic is a topic I'm very excited about because it's a topic that I, frankly, do a lot of thinking about and is central to what I purport to do for a living. And that topic is, should I take more risk? And the reason I'm so intrigued by this topic is because, frankly, I think risk gets a bad rap. I think it gets a bad rap because it's misunderstood. And I think it gets a bad rap, frankly, because it's not very sexy. And it gets a bad rap because it's, it's not very, it's not very visible. It's not very high profile. Um, but when you think about, about risk in business and I think in life, risk is an overline, I'm sorry, is an overarching and underlying variable that impacts or should impact every decision that we make and risk is often viewed negatively we we think of risk as something that is something that is always to be avoided conversely we admire the people who are risk takers you know as somebody who's traveled abroad quite a bit I, i'm frequently asked you know in my travels what is it that makes americans different from everybody else and i think there's really one thing that makes americans different from everybody else and that is that we treat the entrepreneur as a folk hero. There's no other society that I've that I've been to that I've studied that does it quite the same way that we do. And I think we treat the entrepreneur as a folk hero because we admire their willingness to take risk. And by and large, in our economy, we are okay with rewarding people handsomely who take risks and and benefit. <clears throat> excuse me from that risk being take you know uh, paying off. Basically, and um, you, you know, but at the at the same time, risk is one of these things that I, I think is highly underappreciated. And on on that on that same token, I'm asked pretty frequently, actually, you know, how do I improve the value of my business in the short term? I'm thinking of selling or. I want to make it a a better asset to leave to my children or to somebody else. How do I make it more valuable? And and the answer that I think most people expect are well, make your company more profitable or find a way to make it grow. And and those things are fine as far as they go except those things are a lot, easy, lot easier more easily said than done. It's not that easy to grow a company. It's not that easy to make a company more profitable. Those are hard things to do. But the thing you almost never hear somebody saying is my stock answer is, well, figure out a way to de-risk the business, right? Take what you've got and make it more reliable, more resilient, more predictable. And that in and of itself is going to make the company more valuable. And I would argue, and I think there's, I could show you the math to do this for an audio, so I'm not going to inflict that upon you. But I, I could very easily illustrate with math that if you can decrease the risk by, say, 2%, you will improve the value of your company more than if you increase growth or profitability by, by 2%. Um, but again, it's not sexy. You know, the, the chief risk officer never appears on Bloomberg television, is never profiled in the Wall Street Journal, at least very rarely in spite of the fact that we are currently involved in emerging from, I call this a trans pandemic period. I think that's probably still apt. We're still in this, this pandemic period where our nature, our very relationship with risk and the nature of risk in our society and our lives is just different. And I think irreversibly so. And so when our next guest or our current guest comes on, And we had a conversation earlier and she, and she wanted to talk about risk. I just jumped at the opportunity because I think it's so important and it's, it's really not given us, really not given its due. And so it's my pleasure to introduce Amanda Satilli, who is president of strategy consulting firm Satillion Associates. Satillion Associates provides experienced strategic and management consulting to Fortune 500 and growing companies to generate profits, improve performance and drive growth. An internationally acclaimed expert on strategic agility, she gives her clients, including Cardinal Health, Coca-Cola, Delta Airlines, The Home Depot, UPS, and Walmart, you might have heard of them, unbiased and laser-clear advice on how to respond quickly and intelligently to a changing marketplace. Amanda is also author of Fearless Growth, The New Rules to Stay Competitive, Foster Innovation, and Dominate Your Markets, and The Agility Advantage, How to Identify and Act on Opportunities in a Fast-Changing World. Amanda served as an adjunct professor at Emory's Goizueta Business School, is a member of the Marshall Goldsmith 100 Coaches Program, and the Million Dollar Consulting Hall of Fame. Amanda earned her degree in chemical engineering from Vanderbilt and her MBA with distinction from the Harvard Business School. She is past president and board chair of the Harvard Business School Club of Atlanta. Amanda Satilli, welcome to the program.
1: Thanks so much, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So... Amanda I want to lead off because you know we haven't known each other that long but the thing that struck me from our first conversation is you and I are kindred spirits I think in one regard and that we really find risk fascinating and conversations about risk to be very impactful and I'd love to hear your take you've heard mine in my opening monologue but I'd love to hear your take on why risk interests you? Why and why is it, you know, why is it important? Why do people need to understand it better?
1: Two main reasons. One is I work mainly with big companies and big companies do what they do very well and very consistently. So they've been historically good at managing risk, but they're really bad at taking a risk of entering into a new market or learning something new, building new capabilities, dealing with the changes that are coming at them so fast in the market today, just in terms of the way customer behaviors are changing fast, the way competition is changing fast, the way competition can come out of nowhere, which it didn't used to be able to do as easily. And the um, unwillingness to take risks, whether either because of um, trying to make sure to make quarterly earnings promises that they've made or, fear of having to lay people off or fear of not being able to build new capabilities fast enough, that fear of the risks holds so many companies back from being successful. And you can see, you know, tragedies of, of large companies who just lose their way and don't don't adapt quickly enough to the market change.
0: Yeah, you know, and, 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 and that's really interesting. We both can probably name numerous examples, but the one that comes to mind of which I only learned fairly recently, but it's it's such a shocking story. Many people don't realize that, that Kodak had invented compact flash storage many years before it actually became widely available in the marketplace. Uh, but they were so afraid to risk disrupting their own industry, they wound up eventually being effectively consumed by the digital photography market that they had every opportunity to dominate um, by virtue of patent protection. And that, to me, is an object lesson of how a company killed itself by not taking enough risk.
1: Absolutely. It's like the perfect story to illustrate that exact point, because they did invent digital photography, but they were so intent on, you know, protecting their film uh category that they just couldn't step into that territory. So I said I was going to tell you two things, and I didn't tell you the second one. The second reason I think it's important and interesting is because most companies don't do a good job at managing risk. They do a good job at seeing the risk, but they don't do a good job at managing the risk. They uh, flee from risk without just saying, there's steps we can take to manage this. So one of the stories that I think is illustrative of this is um, back when Elon Musk first started Tesla, he said, there's only a 50-50 chance that I'll be successful. But what he did was he said, so why would I not be successful? Okay, maybe people will have range anxiety. So I'll build a car that instead of only can go 80 miles on a battery, can go 350. I'll build these superchargers going up you know, every major highway corridor. He said, why else would they be worried? They will be worried about safety. So I'll, read, I'll win the top safety weight ratings. Why else would they be worried? They'd be worried about um, resale value. So he even for a time promised to buy their Tesla back for a price pegged to the price of a certain Mercedes model. So he just said, okay, it's risky. There's only a 50% chance of success. Figure out what the risks are and address each of them very explicitly. And that's why he's been quite successful.
0: I love that Elon Musk story. I hadn't heard it before, but but I think it's brilliant, and, and a couple of business geeks like us, I think, can can appreciate the can appreciate sort of the subtle genius in that buyback part because they're they're basically then selling a car with a built-in protective put, right? I mean, it's right. just classic hedging, right? Um, so. I want to come back to this, but before I before I go too far off the deep end with you, even though it's really tempting to do so, I want to make sure that everybody understands, our listeners understand, when we say risk, what exactly does that mean? So if I could, may I please ask you to give your definition of risk?
1: My definition is just that you have uncertainty about the outcome. That's all it is. There's many different sources of risk, but the bottom line is you're not sure it's going to work.
0: Now, I, I love, I love that definition and for what it's worth coming from me. I mean, to me, that definite, that definition shows why you're an expert on risk. Because I think when most people hear the word risk, they automatically think of the definition of risk being that risk is the possibility that something will go wrong. But but you said it differently. And I think correctly, which is it's simply the risk that something will go differently than how you anticipated. And that's a massive distinction, isn't it?
1: Right, because there's always an upside, too. So there are things that are uncertainty about the outcome that are actually on the positive side. And if you don't recognize what might happen better than what you expect, you're never prepared to take advantage of those uh, of your good luck.
0: So you so you said something in in the opening question, which again, I I just think is so smart that I want to make sure that we hit on, <clears throat> and and that is that. You describe many companies as as failing to manage risk because instead, they avoid risk, and there's a subtle but important distinction there. I'd love you to go into if you would, and that is, why is why is avoiding risk not the same as managing risk?
1: Well, they're completely different. So avoiding risk is, ooh, I don't know what's gonna happen. I'm afraid I better not do anything. (laughs) Managing risk is, ooh, I don't know what's gonna happen. What could affect what might happen? List those things out and then say, what can we do to manage each of these? What can we do to make it more likely that the good thing is gonna happen and less likely that the bad thing is gonna happen? And then be very explicit about assigning each of those risks to somebody who can make sure that that risk is managed well. So, for example, you're launching a new product. Um, What could go wrong? Um, The market fails to understand it. Uh, Our call center gets overwhelmed with calls. Uh, The sales force is incapable of... um, selling it or is un- is hesitant to sell it because it cannibalizes another product. Just list these things out and then say, so what are we going to do about each of them? And who's in charge of managing that risk? If we're worried about this, the call center being overwhelmed, can we get some backup capacity lined up? If we're worried about the salespeople being unwilling to sell it because it cannibalizes something else, give them some kind of override on their commission. All of these things could be managed. And at the same time, when you talked about you know, uncertainty about the outcome can also be on the upside. What if this goes even better than we expect? Do we have our suppliers uh, organized to be able to sell us more supply than what we thought? Do we have the ability to expand geographically faster than what we were anticipating? Do we have the ability to make the biggest PR buzz out of anybody that uh, likes our product that we didn't expect to like it. You know, there's all kinds of things that can go right, and if you plan for them, you get to jump on it and take advantage of them.
0: So, you, know, you you have a great pedigree working with brand name companies, and and clearly the subject comes up when you're when you're working with them. Why, in your mind, do large companies struggle so much with risk management? Is it something that's cultural? Is it a misalignment of economic incentives? some sort of pathology? What what in your mind kind of drives that?
1: Uh, Two things. One is the incentives usually incent you to do the same thing that you did last year, plus five or 10%, right? So, So, And if you don't do that, you're in big trouble. You don't make your bonus or you might get fired or whatever. And if you do way better than that, it's not necessarily a, a, as big of an advantage. So the incentives tend to be very much disincenting taking risks. Um, the second thing is they're just sloppy. They don't, they're not um, disciplined about how they think about risk and how they manage it.
0: So, so what in your mind, I mean, when when you work with companies like that and you, and you present them with the case that they should be taking on more risk than they are. How do you position that argument? Or what does that argument typically look like that a given entity, person, organization should take on additional risk?
1: Well, first of all, we find ways to manage it where it's not all that risky. So understand the market better, maybe make a small, a small experiment before you make a big experiment. Um, do several different things place several different small bets at once, which is a hedging strategy, Um, You know, isolate the risk into a certain area of the company where it can't damage the other areas of the company. So there's a lot of things that we can do to manage risk. That's on the plus side on the kind of way to get them to kind of emotionally accept the risk more. It's often a case of saying, if you don't do this, you're going to be left in the dust. I mean- they know that, but sometimes they have
0: to be reminded. Um, one of the, the basic concepts of, of behavioral finance is the concept that or the, the construct that humans seem to be hardwired against taking risk. And, and in particular, they're hardwired to avoid loss or with this notion of loss aversion, which I know you know what this means, but our listeners may not. It means that, that people miss more on a, on a dollar that they actively lose than they do on a, uh, on a dollar that is an opportunity missed. And, and that that sort of creates this, this perception or, or risk asymmetry. Um, have you encountered that as well? And if so, how do you, how do you get people to confront that and, and, and look at risk in a more clinical way?
1: Well, first of all, you do want to make sure you don't lose anything that you can't afford to lose. So you don't want to get in a position where you can't pay your mortgage. Yep. So there's a certain level of risk that you just can't afford to take. And so be very explicit about that. Um, but then um, I think thinking about, you know, expected value, which is the percent chance that something's going to happen times the value that it would be would come to you if it did happen is is pretty helpful. Um, and just being very explicit about, uh, you know, the, there is an upside here. The upside is worth it. There's some downside, but if you look at the expected value, it's probably a favorable thing to, to do. And if you don't do it, you're going to be in a slow decline.
0: So that leads nicely into my next, my next question. And we've touched upon this a little bit with the Kodak. Story, but I'd like to make this part of the discussion explicit. And that is, um, you know, so what if people don't take enough risk? Is, you know, what are the consequences of not taking enough risk?
1: Well, you mentioned people. And so I think that it'd be interesting to take this out of a corporate context and just into a human being context. You take risk when you decide to ask somebody on a date. You take at risk when you decide to get married. You know, if 50% of marriages end in divorce, do you say, I better not do that because mine might be one of the 50%? Or do you say, this is my chance for a wonderful life with this wonderful person, I'm going to go for it, even with the risk. So um, I think that, what was your question exactly? Why?
0: What are the consequences? What do you, What do you miss out on when you're not taking enough risk?
1: a lot of stuff. You, you have fewer experiences, fewer experiences or opportunity to grow your business, fewer, uh, opportunities to fully live your life. Um, you know, you name it, you miss out on a lot if you're too risk adverse.
0: So, you know, another, another question I wanted to cover is, is, you know, there are varying degrees of risk and you talked to, you talked about you know, you never want to bet your mortgage um, or or put anything on the line you can't afford to lose. Um, and of course that that's always that's a relative that's a relative construct. But the question I'd like to ask you to engage with is: is high risk always bad? Right? Is is something that's high risk always something that you should walk away from, or are there cases in which high you know? something that's high risk may actually be sensible.
1: Well, if you just look at investments, for instance, you tend to have a higher return for the higher risk. So it's definitely not always bad. Um, You also never would achieve anything truly remarkable and knock it out of the park if you didn't take risks, because, you know, we would have never gone to the moon if we didn't accept some risks, for instance. So high risk is certainly not always bad, but, high risk without managing the risk is probably always bad. So high risk without considering the consequences, mitigating what you can mitigate, uh, taking into account how can we reduce the risk that we see, that is bad.
0: And, and you know, that that sounds like there's an important distinction to be made there. If I can semi put words into your mouth. It, it seems to me that you know, a risk taker is somebody who takes risks but but manages it can be contrasted with somebody who's reckless that also takes risks <clears throat> but they no, don't don't manage, manage it and maybe they don't even fully understand the risks that they're taking
1: that's exactly it they don't they don't understand or don't think about it and um that probably happens more often when the risk is long term and the benefit is short term hmm. So if I eat a piece of cake with ice cream every single day, my risk is that I'm going to become obese and I'm going to have diabetes and I'm going to die early, but that doesn't, you know, people don't take that into consideration when they serve themselves the new extra helping of dessert. So.
0: Well, that's true. And you know, that, that, that's interesting because, you know, there is a, there's another element, you know, I, 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 I typically think of risk in terms of two dimensions. One dimension is what is the likelihood of a bad outcome? And then B, what, what does the bad, how bad is that bad outcome or what is the distribution of bad outcomes look like and how bad can it go? Mm -hmm. But another a third dimension to that actually is the timing of risk. And, and some risks are accretive over a long period of time. And some are very, are, are, you know, instantaneous. And I guess that's something that also is, is an important part of the discussion. And maybe even gets back to your Fortune 500 clients where you talk about, talk about incentives. You, you know, can there, can there be perverse incentives to take risk? Because the, 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 the negative impact of the risk may not manifest itself for years after that person's tenure at the company has long since ended.
1: That's exactly right. So, um, you know, if I'm in in a job, I'm the president of a division and I'm being incented based on this quarter's results or this year's results, I don't want to risk anything for something that's going to happen after I retire in a few years, right? Why would I want to do that? Um, So that's the kind of thing you need to watch out for when you're managing a company. But also, you know, some of the benefits occur way down the line. Well, I guess that's the same thing that I'm saying is that that in companies often the cost is now and the benefit is later.
0: Well, you know, and I and I think that's really important. And you know, I, I've I have a hypothesis that one of the reasons that that private equity and venture capital struggles is because their their return thresholds have become much more compressed, and this notion that you know most venture and private equity funds have a 10 year lifespan. Um That may very well just not be enough time for companies to mature to the point where they can generate a return and indeed there's there 's data out there to suggest that as you approach a twenty year time horizon for a company um, that 's when you kind of optimize your risk adjusted return um, but on the other hand, if your bonuses are your bonuses are calculated year to year or you 're only going to be in that fund for five years or what or you know whatever the circumstances are. It 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 probably motivates in that industry perverse behavior. For example, to try to harvest companies before they're fully baked, which is uh, not doing the investors uh you know any 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 favors, and that's just an illustration of that mismatch between the risk and return time horizons.
1: Right. So public companies, I think, have even more of a problem with short term thinking because they have to deliver on their earnings expectations every single quarter, and they get really dinged by Wall Street if they don't do that. Whereas at least with a private equity firm, if you say, you know, we're shooting for a t- five-year horizon, at least in years one, two, and three, you can, you know, let it go negative on EBITDA if that's the right thing to do, for instance, because you you know that it's going to pay off in the right, in the five years. So if private equity firms can, stay a little bit flexible of what's the right period of time for this investment to turn to turn positive then they can protect themselves from that but you know you look at somebody like Amazon Amazon didn't make money for years and years and years yep they just kept investing and I'll never forget that way back in about um 2001 I was talking with one of my co or my classmates from Harvard Business School who was way up in the chain at, at, at Amazon working closely with Jeff Bezos and somebody in the crowd said, when will you guys stop losing money? And she said, well, it only costs us $4 to acquire a new customer. When would you stop? (laughs) I Mm. just thought that's a really, really smart way of putting it because if it's only $4 to, to acquire a new customer, keep doing it until you have everybody in the world using Amazon. (laughs) And then you've cornered the market, which is kind of what they did.
0: Well, yeah, I, I hadn't heard that story, but you're right. I mean, the logic there is very hard to escape, isn't it? Yes. So let, let's let's say that somebody in our somebody listening to this is starting to ask themselves, "Hey, I wonder if our company is taking enough risk." What are some signs that a company should be taking more risk, or at least should consider taking on more risk? than it currently is. What are the warning signs?
1: Um, If you've got a lot of change in your market and you haven't done anything about it is one of the key things that I look at. Um, If you haven't invested in any innovation is another thing. Um, Innovation can be product innovation, but it can also be systems integration, you know, process innovation, even simple stuff like changing the script that your call center issues um, is typically a sign that you're not taking enough risk. If you're not talking about where do we need to take more risk? And if you don't have disciplined systems for managing risk, that probably means you're not taking enough risk because you're just, you don't have it in your DNA of how do we think about risk? You know, because the world is changing fast, the companies that can deal with uncertainty effectively, that's a huge competitive advantage to be able to deal with uncertainty effectively and manage risk effectively is probably the number one thing that companies can do to succeed in a fast changing world.
0: I'm absorbing that statement. I think, I think, um, you know, I think you're right, and you know, my perspective is one of corporate finance, and I refer to I refer to the law of gravity in finance, which says that that high return generally, or high return only accompanies high risk. And if you if you generate a high return from something that you thought was low risk, you probably just got lucky, and you misevaluated the risk as being lower than it actually was. Um, and, and I think what you're I think what you're describing is 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 fairly closely connected with that that you know if if you want to outperform, then you must do something different from what the rest of the market is doing right otherwise you just simply fall into the trap of reversion to the mean right I mean you might have you might have temporary day to day month to month even year to year variability or noise if you will but at the end in the long run you cannot possibly you cannot possibly outperform everybody else if all you do is what everybody else is doing. Exactly. Um, in, in your mind, is all risk created equal, or are, are there are there different kind of flavors of risk, if you will?
1: Yeah, there's definitely different flavors. Um, one major flavor is, are we capable of doing this? Another major flavor is how are other entities or other people going to respond to what I'm doing? Another is just what are the, the, the consequences of what I'm going to do? Um, so I think, yeah, there's a number of different categories that you can think about and each can be managed.
0: So in, in your mind, do you have a distinction of what a good risk is versus a bad risk? Is, is there such a thing as good versus bad risk?
1: A good risk is something that you can at least name and that you at least have either some kind of plan to reduce it or manage it or at minimum monitor it so that you can respond and you have a plan for how to respond if it starts going going badly. Um, a bad risk is the risk you don't even know is there.
0: Hmm. The famous The famous unknown unknowns, right?
1: Yeah, right.
0: Because those, you know, those bad risks are, are almost kind of like open-ended liabilities. You just, you just, there, there may be no limit to, to how bad that outcome could be.
1: Right. Or it's something that maybe you sort of think might happen, but you don't really think it's going to happen, so you don't worry about it, like pandemics, which, you know, we all knew. Uh, I had a friend at the CDC who 10 years ago said, we're, we're way overdue for a pandemic. A worldwide pandemic. I just go, yeah, yeah, that, that, yeah. Probably won't happen.
0: <laughs>
1: but here we are. Here we are. <laughs>
0: um. So, so here, here's a question I I, I want to ask you. I think I think it's. I hope you'll agree. It's an interesting one. And, and that is that if you take a risk, and the outcome doesn't turn out positively, it doesn't produce a positive outcome, does that mean that the act of taking the risk was automatically bad.
1: Definitely not. I mean, if you uh there's some really good speakers on this topic, they're often professional poker players and they say, you know, you you calculate your odds and you place your bet. Of course you don't always win because the odds were not 100% that you were going to win. So of course you know that you're not always going to win, but don't let that, you know, don't let the evidence from your failures teach you that you made a bad decision in the first place
0: yeah and and you know that last point I think is so important because it again it ties back to psychology at, at least the things I've read I'm, I'm no expert in psychology but again we as people seem to have a hard wire, it seem to be hardwired to very clearly remember our losses and failures whereas we don't dwell as much or remember or even place as much value on our successes and um you know, in that regard, it can dissuade people. Just because you have one bad outcome, it can dissuade people from doing more of the right thing.
1: I think that's really true. I think people learn from their failures, and that can be kind of bad because oftentimes when you fail, you think, "Oh, that was because of something that I did, that I made a bad decision." And when you succeed, uh, unfortunately, you often think, "Oh, I got lucky." You know,
0: like, yeah,
1: <laughs> it wasn't because of what I did. I was just Got lucky, so yeah. I think that um, no matter what you do, you're being trained every day, and you're training your employees every day, and often you're training them things that you you really shouldn't be training them.
0: Well, that that you know what that's interesting. What what are some examples? What are some examples of of things that somebody might be inadvertently training their employees to them, themselves be too risk averse?
1: Uh, a typical one is um, you start a new venture within your company because you think that you need to enter a new market or or something and you assign somebody to manage that. They try their hardest, but, you know, it's hard. Stuff goes wrong. They fail and they either get switched into a different department or demoted or even maybe fired or, or at least not rewarded very well. Um, but. Maybe they should have been rewarded well because maybe they did everything that they could have possibly done to make that successful, and the outcome was uncertain, and the outcome didn't go their way. but once you set a couple of examples like that, boy, people are watching. Nobody wants to go near a project like that anymore,
0: yeah, you know what that that that's really interesting, and you know I wonder if we'll ever get to a point where American businesses and it may not be unique to America, but it's the only one I can comment on intelligently. Um, will we ever get to a point where, where American businesses actually celebrate failures, right? Because, you know, failures, first of all, failures are great teachers, number one. And, 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 and number two, you know, you, you almost, you know, because of the, because the nature of risk that, you know, things just aren't always going to go your way, and I'm curious if you agree with this or not really in order for, in order for risk management to really take hold and to really make an impact, you almost have to do it a lot. You have to accumulate enough of a sample size so that the impact of the risk management becomes pronounced and you can actually attribute performance to something other than simple dumb luck of a small sample size. Mm
1: -hmm. Right.
0: Right. Um, Yeah. And I, yeah, I, on that, I'm curious if you have an opinion on this. On, on that note, that brings to mind the archetypal um Google now alphabet um approach to new projects where they like to fail fast. And and our conversations made me start to wonder about that about, about that particular approach. You know, I think many people idolize Google for the fail fast approach. It's you know, it's gutsy, it's splashy, it's high profile and everything else. But on the other hand, I wonder if actually that's a kind of, that could be, that could be an actually um, kind of a a perverse or an unhealthy form of risk aversion because you're not, you you may not be writing things out as much as you should.
1: So what I think is important is being very clear about what you need to learn from each experiment that you run and what metrics you're going to be watching, what Behaviors you're going to be watching, what you're really wanting out of it, and fail fast. Part of it is really good, which is saying if you if something isn't going well and it's not gonna it's not gonna turn around, it's not gonna do any better. Kill it right away and document what you learned from it, and then try something else. Um, because sometimes, especially big companies, they kind of you know they're slow anyway. It's a long time between getting the management team together. They just don't make decisions fast. And so they let these things linger because they don't want to embarrass the person who runs it or they don't want to embarrass, you know, have to go back to Wall Street and say, we told you this was going to be successful, but it wasn't. So they let these things linger, hoping that they'll turn around and continuing to pour not quite enough money into them to make them successful, maybe. And so because there's a a stigma against failure they don't let things fail. So I think actually the, the, um, you know, concept of fast failure is healthy for Google. And I like the fact that they just keep putting different stuff out there and seeing if it flies. And if it doesn't, they kill it. You know, Facebook is famous for that too. They do AB testing, hundreds of different AB tests every, every day. And they Hmm. let almost anybody, I don't know about almost anybody, but there's a lot of people who have the, 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 um, decision rights to be able to conduct AB tests and to learn from them very, very, very quickly.
0: We're talking with Amanda Satilli, and the topic is, should I take on more risk? Um, you know, we're, 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 we're both talking kind of a good game here about risk, if you will. I wonder if you'd be willing to share with the audience, uh, an instance in which you took a pretty significant risk and, you know whether that was a success or a failure, the impact of taking that risk, and the lessons that you learned from doing that for yourself or your own company.
1: Uh, you really got me thinking with that one. Um, I guess that uh, writing my first book was kind of a risk because it, I invested a lot of time for many months doing that, and I didn't know if it was really important to do. So that that was a risk, and it, and it did pay off. Um, I don't know if I've told you, Mike, that my husband and I are really, really into kiteboarding. And in July, in kiteboarding, we tend to only get wind when there's a thunderstorm.
0: <laughs> oh. and so
1: we're always watching the, the uh, radar and trying to figure it out. And, you know, back in March, April, or May, when we get more wind, we might say, oh, we're not, you know, we're going to pack up the kites and go home if the wind, if the lightning is within 20 miles. And then it gets to July and you're like desperate for wind. It's been no wind for seven days or whatever. You've been waiting for wind and there's wind, but the lightning is within 10 miles and you go, well, maybe I'll just go out there for a little while. <laughs> so
0: well, so you that's know, an example. Well, you know, that's an interesting story. And, and actually is <laughs> illustrative, I, th- of, I think of a dimension of risk where, um, you know, the, the same risk is there, but because your perceived return was higher, Right, right, you then determined that it was a risk that was worth uh, that it was worth taking, and I think that's I do think there's a business application to that is 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 that you know high risk is okay as long as you're being adequately compensated with the potential upside of taking that risk um, alongside with management of course management of downside as well right, and in your case, that upside manifested itself with, I think, relative scarcity, because the downside was that if you, if you didn't take that risk, you might've just missed out in your entire kiteboarding season and have to wait another year. That's right. Um, now, a, a, a common, a common approach to, to man- managing risk and finances is where I live is this concept called diversification. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with it too. Um, can, can that, can can diversification as a risk management tool be applied outside of the direct investment world?
1: Well, yeah, we do that all the time where, um, you know, you are trying to enter a new market, let's say, and instead of just doing it one way, you might run three to five different experiments. We'll try different things in different markets. We'll try different ways of going to market. We'll try different sales pitches for this product. So I think that diversification in that sense is just trying different things and being very systematic about what you try and what you need to learn from your trials.
0: So Amanda, we're, we're running out of time. This is a topic that, I mean, frankly, we could do a whole semester on on, <laughs> on risk. Maybe we should. Yeah. But um, there are probably questions that I didn't get to or questions that, somebody would have liked us to go deeper into, but, but we didn't. Um, and if that's so, can people contact you with additional questions about this topic? And if so, what's the best way for them to do that?
1: Um, so you can certainly email me at Amanda at S E T I L I. And um, reach out to me on LinkedIn. I've got a weekly newsletter there, which you can subscribe to, which I address issues like this. And actually, I think both of my books have a chapter on managing uncertainty and how it's so important and how people who don't accept uncertainty are probably not going to do very well. So uh, get a hold of those and you might you might be able to um, get some additional insight. But connect with me on LinkedIn.
0: Very good. Well, that's going to wrap Oh, you want to give us the uh, website domain?
1: Yeah, the website is just satili.com, uh, S-E-T-I-L-I.com. There's lots of information there and videos and, and other podcasts and things like that.
0: Very good. Well, that's going to wrap it up for today's program. I'd like to thank Amanda Satili so much for sharing her expertise with us. We'll be exploring a new topic topic each week. So please tune in so that when you're faced with your next business decision, you have clear vision when making it. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving a review with your favorite podcast aggregator. It helps people find us that so we can help them. If you'd like to engage with me on social media with my chart of the day and other content, I'm on LinkedIn as myself and at Unblakeable on Facebook, Twitter, clubhouse, and Instagram. Once again, this is Mike Blake, our sponsors, Brady, Ware company. And this has been the decision vision podcast.